no humanity They fire at our family Our flow will be the remedy Cause water got no Welcome everyone to Out of the Margins. On today's episode, we are reflecting on what it takes to manifest concrete, bold, aspirational visions for the youth justice and child welfare system. And we are joined today by the Campaign for Youth Justice, which is nearing its sunset. But in the few years that it has been together, it has accomplished phenomenal, phenomenal transformative change for young people across the country. So I have two guests with us. Feel free to share your name and a little bit about what brought you to the work that you do. Well, I am Marcy Mistret, and I have been the CEO at the Campaign for Youth Justice for uh, about seven years, so about half its lifetime. And Manuel, I just want to thank you and AFF for being such great partners. I'm really happy to bring a current board member on with me, who's also a very good friend and has had a lot of roles in the campaign. So I'll turn it over to you to introduce yourself. Hi, and thank you for having me. Billy Harris, I'm involved in this work because I was convicted of murder at the age of 16, along with my sister, who at the time was 17. I served 15 years of a 35-year sentence and got out on parole. And um, honestly, for several years, I was just on my own and didn't know there was organizations that really helped or really cared about people like me, about changing laws for youth, any of these things. So due to the Scottish decision in 2012 that said mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles was unconstitutional. That prompted an organization called Campaign for Fair Sentencing of Youth to reach out to me who was trying to change laws throughout the country that sentenced juveniles to life without parole sentences um, due to the fact that my sister was serving and wanted to know if I would help them with some policy work and testifying to get bills passed. And ultimately, that led me to come into contact with Marcy and the Campaign for Youth Justice. Um, Billy's really been instrumental in the work at the Campaign for Youth Justice. I came to the campaign first as a volunteer and doing a lot of the youth organizing work at the time to close youth prisons in D.C. And so because I had in the 1990s worked in community-based legal aid in Chicago and worked all on cases, direct cases with automatic transfer. So I knew many, many kids who were 14, 15, 16 that I was still in touch with who were still incarcerated. And even though I left the field of youth justice for a while and went into education, I just couldn't believe that things hadn't changed over that time. So I think once you meet young people who have been part of this population, you don't ever stop feeling passionate about changing the laws that are just so brutal. Thank you guys for sharing that story. Um, 15 years of doing this really powerful work. What did it feel like in the beginning to declare that you sought to transform the youth justice system and address Uh, the issues that the campaign has worked on? I think that in the early years, the thing that we realized very early from both interviews with family members and interviews with policymakers, even pollsters, no one knew the extent but to which this was happening, right? There was no federal mechanism to collect the data. There was really no idea of how many children we had um, stripped of their childhood, right? Automatically, in particular, in the 1990s. And so there was one of the family members who had initially reached out to the campaign. Her name was Julie Jensen. And she just said, you know, my son was arrested in New Hampshire. He's only 17 years old. He's been charged as an adult. What is going on? She's like, if I can get some funding to you, do you think you can figure out 
out how big a problem this is. And the early years of the campaign were dedicated to just that, digging through, seeing where the gaps of numbers were. What did people know about this? Overwhelmingly, what we found was that people don't know how prevalent it is. They don't know who these children are. They don't have any idea what they're facing when they go into the adult system. And once they do, they uniformly support reforms, right? It took a long time to get that going. And for people to believe that something is real, you have to introduce that concept to them many times over. So I think that was a lot of the early work of the campaign to identify um, people who could be credible speakers to this. That's why the campaign started with impacted families. And remember, back then, impacted folks were not part of many campaigns. It was a very uh, new idea 15 years ago. Yeah, I would say as far as me and getting involved, of course, I haven't been involved nearly as long, but I got locked up in 1987. I got out of prison in 2002. And it wasn't until 2016 that I was introduced to either of these campaigns, right? CFSY or CFYJ. And it wasn't until 2016 that I had any idea that people were working in these efforts that, like I said, that people really cared. I had always heard folks would say, and they still do, oh, at 16, I knew the difference between right and wrong. I knew better than to kill someone. And honestly, since that was the prevailing societal thought, I kind of felt the same way because when I thought back at 16, I'm like, okay, I know what I'm doing. And it wasn't until literally getting involved with the campaign and starting to research and learn about brain science and the idea that our brains aren't fully developed. And then it started making me think back on my own past. And I literally could relate a, a shift in my thinking to a time when I was in prison, of course, but at 25 years old, I got in some more trouble in prison and sitting in the hole, I started thinking, what are you doing? And I started realizing that I, I was making dumb decisions and that I wasn't thinking about my future like I thought I was. And once I started learning these things later on in life, I thought back on those times. I'm like, wow, that the brain science is true because I could relate it to a direct incident, you know, a direct thinking process in myself where I, where I noticed a change in a shift. So coming into contact with the campaign was like finding a family because for, for all those years, I thought no one cared about us. No one thought that we were capable of changing. No one believed in us and finding people that said, no, that's not true. We do understand and we know that you don't think the same as adults. These things just made me feel like I had found a family and people that cared and people that understood. You know, some of what you talked about is what we've heard advocates and organizers help others understand who may have these preconceived notions about what is happening in a young person in a particular situation and also like how to address the aftermath. And we know that incarceration, it's never helped young people. So as y'all identify the different narratives narratives and the different interventions and solutions you, you call for throughout the campaign. Can you help us learn a little bit more about what changes you saw in people, in policies, in institutions throughout the life of your work as advocate? Um, I've watched many families burn out on this. Policy change and behavior change and heart and mind change takes a really long time. And the courage to get up and over time tell your story when a lot of people might have the opinion that Billy shared, right? 
right? You, you were old enough to know better. And to be putting yourself in a position where you're judged or somebody says, well, it's important, but we're not going to pay for it. That's not where our money should go. It's really, really hard. And so the fact that not only was Billy willing to talk about his story, but that he has never given up on his sister, it was also showing the impact that these decisions have not only on the individual, but on their entire families. And I think that is something that still is not enough of the narrative. What became clear to us at the beginning, again, there was a whole bunch of policy options. We had no idea what would work, what would stick. When I came in halfway through, there was kind of three buckets of work, right? There was there was the campaigns to raise the age. And those were campaigns that said that the age that a state sets that considers children to be adults in the eyes of the law should be at 18, right? And while we knew there were carve-outs and exceptions to that everywhere, we wanted agreement that at a minimum that age should be 18. So those were called our Raise the Age campaigns. There was 14 states who had set up at 16 or 17 when we opened. We're now down to three states. And the other reason that an initiative was so critically important is that it really closed the front door to the adult system. It was so, that's where the tens of thousands of kids went in because of lower ages of criminal responsibility. The second piece is getting kids out of adult facilities, either while they were waiting for trial, still considered innocent until proven guilty in this country, or if they had been sentenced to some adult time to ensure that they weren't going straight into adult facilities. And while that wasn't the end game, right? Because it was, that's a protection to make sure that for the children that are there, that they have some form of protection. Um, we used federal law to really motivate states and provide financial incentives. That's been an area that we've just seen so much growth. Um, it went from 10,000 kids a night. Now we're under 3,500 children a night. Um, and there is only about 650 children in prison. So the Prison Rape Elimination Act was a major federal law that helped to get those young people who are 18 and under I mean, outside of adult prisons and, and back to more youth-centered facilities. And then in 2018, we got the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act reauthorized, and that now calls on states by the end of next year to get young people out of their adult jails, even if they've been certified as adults. That's a huge deal because we know that while youth facilities certainly are not healthy places for young people, they beat the pants off any adult facility. Um, and there is some, at least, training and orientation to rehabilitation and families as um, an asset, right, to youth justice systems that are actually following positive youth development principles and practices. And then the last one is automatic transfer. And this one really mattered to us because of the racial disparities that we found. There are about two-thirds of the states have automatic transfer laws where a child, based on their age and their charge, starts an adult court. And we had a real big problem with that. We knew that children were getting overcharged. And we rapidly found out that those children overwhelmingly were black, brown, and tribal youth. And so that really was the most racially unjust part of the system. Lots of fights around that one as well. So those are kind of the three big buckets organizing our work around. The first advocacy work I did was to testify for and then again against bills that were trying to bring Missouri's laws into 
into compliance with the 2012 Scottish decision stating that mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles was unconstitutional. And talking about it makes me think back on it and kind of brings up the emotions that were involved in it. I mean, no one knows what it's like to walk this path except the people who walked in it. Some of the folks who are listening may not understand and may not have never lived what you shared and what you've walked through. So there's so much wisdom. I think a lot of things that funders get wrong is they think that if they fund something, people just get out there and because of the money, they just get it done in the three-year life cycle or the one-year life cycle of the grant and case closed, right? And a lot of what people don't see is the blood, sweat, and tears for people who've lived through the challenges to be in the front of the room leading those fights and showing up for it every day. And they don't see the emotions and they don't see the wear and tear and also the deep, beautiful power and inspiration. So I appreciate you reminding us that is an important part of what it means to support directly impacted leadership as y'all lead this work and to challenge our notion of time. You know, Marcy said 15 years ago, people didn't talk about this. They didn't talk about that. Or we went from 10,000 to 3,500. And I don't know how many people would get how much work that took by so many different organizations and folks, you know, as you look in the future and what more needs to happen, just curious, like, what do you hope will happen either about the actual work or about the people involved in the work and how we collaborate together? Any wishes and dreams for what is to come in the future? Something that I think about a lot as far as visions for the future and what more needs to be done. Um, I think there's really great momentum right now as far as lots of folks around the country working and understanding that we need to change the laws. We need to change really the way we treat with the way we think of youth. So I think that's in really good hands right now. Definitely what impacts me the most what has impacted me the most throughout this work is a lack of support. So for me, what I hope can happen and can come out of these ventures of, of just thinking differently about youth is also thinking more about the back end and when the youth that are sentenced come out as adults, that there's a better support system overall for them. Every city, every society will have a system in place to support that specifically, those individuals, their mental health, job training, simple things. Um, maybe something like a, a get started grant funds, ac actual funds that can help people feel more secure and not have to worry about how to make ends meet from day to day immediately upon release. I think what's missed, at least on a societal level, not a campaign level, of course, but on a societal level is that when someone goes in as a child into prison, spends decades there, they come out as an adult and are expected to act like an adult and be able to survive on their own and I guess intuitively know what that is and how to do that. And the truth is we don't. Technology changes. So many things change in the world that myself specifically, I had no adult experiences. So I didn't know how to open a bank account. I literally didn't know how to pump gas when I got out of prison because they were manual when I went in and they were electronic when I come out. I had no experience with credit cards, with debit cards, with computers, with any of that. That's a little bit different today today, if you just look back 10 years, maybe in someone getting out today, maybe they bought, they've probably already touched a computer, but technology continues to change. So 
there's always going to be advances in society that are not happening in folks' lives that are in prison. So there really needs to be something set up that understands this and a mechanism in place to help people navigate that without feeling like they're on their own. I feel like a big part of recidivism is caused by people not believing in themselves because they don't have a support system. So they just get frustrated with the no's, they get frustrated with not knowing what they should do or how to do it, when they should do it, and they fall back on what comes easy to them, what they know. And ultimately, that's going to be a survival mechanism. And to a lot of people, that, that goes back to crime. It goes back to drugs, it, you know, so many crutches that one has. So, so to me, that would be the idea thing is that there could be some more specific funding toward organizational infrastructure, literally to help people when they get out of prison. And I, I think that's a really powerful point because there is a movement now. We understand that while um, the Supreme Court decisions and juvenile life without parole, there's been some really impressive movement around it. But two things. One, compared to the number of kids who go into the adult system, those sentenced with life without parole is a pretty small subset. And I think in some ways, we have to make people understand that a 10-year sentence to a child feels every bit the same (laughs) as a decades-long sentence. It's very hard for a 16-year-old to project out farther than those 10 years. So I'm not at all saying they're the same, but I'm saying we have to be just as astonished and shocked by that those 10 or 15 year sentences as we do with the extreme ones. There is movement around second look legislation um, that is trying to mitigate the harms of those extreme and long sentences that fall short of that Supreme Court requirement that it's life without parole. You know, D.C. just yesterday actually passed a second look bill that says anyone that was under the age of 25 can request a second look after 15 years of incarceration. But that also requires um, that for the people who come home resources from the city to help them, to exactly Billy's point, to help them get back on their feet, right? And we know housing is a huge, huge problem, not just for formerly incarcerated folks, but it is becoming the crisis of this generation. And I think as we're starting to build networks of people, um, the thing that a, a lot of folks don't talk about, a lot of the spokespeople that we've worked with and the young people, how many of them actually go into helping services? How many become violence interrupters, credible messengers? Billy's worked with young people on probation, use the arts and healing and agriculture, things like that. So many foster care children, so many people are giving back to their communities. And I I don't know how to elevate that so loudly that these are children who we said, you're so terrible, we're going to put you away forever. And they're coming back to help and to uplift. Um, And I think there's real power and beauty in that. I am really hopeful that we are going to start to address some of those real big barriers, the practice of prosecutors to stack charges, the practices, mandatory minimums with handguns, the idea that somebody possessing a gun means that they are an aggressor instead of the fact that they feel like have to carry a gun because they're petrified. Uh, Young people have been in the sex trade, understanding that those sentences also shouldn't have mandatory pieces attached to them. So I think that there's a lot of work being done to push back on this. I think there's a ton of work being done across both with victims and with young people who have done time on charges to break down the myth that there is one group that perpetrates violence and one group that is victimized by violence. I think there's been a lot of work understanding that experience can live in one person and often does live in one person and that there are other solutions and responses that are much more effective for everybody and much more validating and much more respectful and restorative. 
And my hope is that we get to that piece. But we have got to figure out a way to show society that those young people can be served in community as well. They don't need 40 years before it's safe for them to be at home. That's right. And, And Murphy, another piece of that is thinking back on my own experiences, my first interaction with with the law was at the age of 14. I ended up catching a case of aiding and abetting, and I got six months probation for that. However, I didn't get any kind of rehabilitation or any supportive services during that six months of probation. It was just a sense of you're in trouble, stay out of trouble, and you'll be okay through this process. And no one ever asked me, you know, what was going on in my life, what caused me to make these decisions, what I thought about the decisions, any of that. And so the next time I come into contact with the law was at the age of 16. And during that time, so much could have been done that could have changed the you know, the course of my life. So one thing that is is great on the horizon right now, California is often the leader in, in progressive changes and especially has been in the way that they treat youth and the way that they think about youth. So our newest incoming DA just, just announced that he will no longer transfer youth to adult court. So there's a process there. There has to be new infrastructure built, new policies, new thinking around, okay, so what do we do? How do we address these things? But that's a really good start that people are looking at that and saying, okay, no matter what the crime is, it's like they jump this expanse of you're a child until you do something wrong, right? You can't vote, you can't smoke, you can't buy liquor, you can't do all these things until you're 18, oftentimes until you're 21. But even if you're 14 years old and you commit what society says is an adult felony, then all of a sudden they look at you as an adult. So by stopping that, And by looking at youth as youth, as children, as not fully developed mentally, then we can start to rethink and apply new processes to how we address that. It's the starting point. How you address that is like where you start with that. I'm just hopeful that we can do more of that. And no matter what, no matter what the the crime is or the transgression, that we look at people where they are and start with the approach of, okay, can we deal with this on a level that this is a youth and let's give them support, whether that's therapy, whether that's a better home, whatever it is, there's so much that can be done there. Instead of just jumping that expanse and saying, okay, now you're an adult, we're just going to treat you like an adult. We're not even going to look at this anymore. I think one of the things I worry about is there is a perception that the work is done because youth incarceration stopped by 55%, because we've had laws change in 80% of the states in terms of treating young people as if they were adults. Um, I think that there's a real mis- perception that the work is done. The work is not done. There is a lot more work. I think we do need a racial justice lens on a lot of this work. And I do think we need much more investment in prevention, responses to trauma. What we hear all the time is at the beginning, when there's reforms, there is a willingness by government to invest in community-based services. But as soon as that state or local county gets into a fiscal crunch situation, which we're really worried about after COVID-19, frankly, that when those services go away and those safety nets go away, those are the first things to be cut. So even if we closed a youth prison, even if we got kids out of the adult system, if we close those safety nets in community because there's a budget crunch, we're going to end up in the same place that we used to be. And that's putting an awful lot of stress on families that are already experiencing a tremendous amount of stress. There really has to be significant and long-term investments in community-based services. 
is. We know, as Billy talked about, California has been leading the way on some of this. I laugh because our allies in California always say, wow, we brought all this pain to everybody, so it's our responsibility to fix it. And they're getting there, but it's taken years for them to redirect that money back to community and to build up the capacity of community to be able to handle young people with very complex needs and their families and over a long amount of time, right? One of the shortcomings of us always investing in the system is once the child leaves the system, all those supports go away. Where if you do it in community, regardless of what door they came in, that community should still be there. They don't oftentimes ask, oh, did you come here from the adult criminal justice system or the juvenile one, right? Or child welfare. They're just like, oh, welcome member of community. You're here and we're going to support you. So I think we need a lot more investments in, in that type of work and to really build that out over time. There's another piece and I go back to my roots in Missouri. The work isn't done even in states that we've changed the laws in many instances, such as Missouri. There's still work that needs to be done to open the sentencing up so that you can look at individuals as they are, where they are, mentally, physically, age, however you want to look at it, and have options that, you know, right now Missouri's hands are tied. So if a youth went into court and say they were 14 years old and they had killed an abusive parent, for instance, if they're convicted of that, the judge has no alternative other than to sentence them to a mandatory 25-year sentence. You know, that's still a broken system. So we, we need to open that back up to where there's more discretion in how we can treat an individual as an individual. I think that's exactly right. We forget about history. In, in the 1970s, before a lot of this stuff happened, the Truth and Sentencing and the Omnibus Crime Bill, we forget that it used to be in the United States that people did about seven years on murder charges, right? 25 years is an international uh, marker for life that is considered a life sentence. And then people often got sentenced to lower than life. And then they were able to get day for day good time. And then you were able to work off more of that time by doing programming. We have become so extreme in thinking about what is enough punishment that we really still have to walk it back because to Billy's point, 25 years is still an incredibly long time for anybody. The knowledge is out there. I think we've changed a lot of hearts and minds, but the resources really now need to be targeted very specifically in those places that Billy's referring to that still haven't gone far enough that have no checks and balances yet and are still sending 200, 300, 400 kids a year into the adult system. That's where we have to invest that. It's passing that work now onto the folks in the field because they have the national resources already that they can access and they have other states that they can look to who have done it. So one thing that's very important is institutions like yourself that fund campaigns like Marcy's I started at the campaign as a spokesperson. They have an initiative called Spokespeople's Bureau, where folks tell their story and share, and it's basically a restorative justice model. Just having that in place gave me basically a foundation to, to learn how to advocate. And then because they were such a great organization, they thought, well, how can we help people get more involved? How can we help them learn more? support them more. And so they started a junior board and I was lucky enough to be selected for their junior board. That gave me more insight into how organizations work and again, helped build a family in advocacy for me and ultimately led to me applying to their full board whenever they had an opening where 
if I wouldn't have had those early foundational steps, then I, I never would have thought myself capable of serving on a board. So funding of organizations like the Campaign for Youth Justice was so important in my developmental growth as an advocate and teaching me how to advocate for others, not just my sister that's serving a life without parole sentence, but for youth in our communities today. So thank you again for supporting them. That was Marcy Mistret and Billy Harris from the Campaign for Youth Justice. We thank them for their devotion and hard work across more than 15 years, helping advance substantial wins for the youth justice movement. Although the campaign has closed, their wisdom and knowledge still continues, and you can find them at campaignforyouthjustice.org where their resources are still available to the community. Marcy is now with the Sentencing Project, continuing her labor of love for the movement. We thank you, Marcy, for your service, and we thank all of you who helped advance these wins.